Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this latest in our series of classical conversations presented by the Seattle Chamber Music Society. This is a series of podcasts that we're doing produced by the society that comes to you from the SoundBridge Learning Center at Benaroya Hall in Seattle. We have a live audience assembled with us here on Sunday afternoon, July 22nd, 2012, as we capture this next hour of music and musical conversation and send it out to you. Over the next hour, we'll listen to some excerpts and discuss some of the pieces featured in the Summer Festival of the Seattle Chamber Music Society. The 31st summer season of the festival is going into its fourth and final week upstairs here in the Nordstrom Recital Hall. So first of all, thanks to all of you who are with us live this afternoon and however you've chosen to engage with us today. We are most grateful, as always, for your time and interest. My name is Dave Beck. I'm a host and producer at 94.9 KUOW Public Radio in Seattle, a local cellist and music lover and longtime uh, friend of this society and festival. And it's my great pleasure now to once again introduce you to a Seattle Chamber Music Society Festival artist. We are so pleased to have pianist Andrew Armstrong back with us this summer, and let's welcome him. It's great to have you here, Andy. Thanks, Dave. It's good to be here. What a, what a special opportunity. Yeah, it's, it's, these have been really fun. And I appreciate artists taking the time to do this because the schedule is, is um, it moves right along from one rehearsal to the next event. As I began listening to and thinking about the, the pieces that you're going to be doing this summer, um, it's, it's funny. We could kind of talk, call this talk, I was a teenage composer because uh, most of the stuff you were... A performing it was written by composers who were between about 16 and 19 years of age. Um, did you have anything to do with that, or is that one of those sort of wonderful coincidences? It was, it's, it was just a coincidence, I suppose. Um, but, you know, it's fun. You talk about um, composers maturing and really learning their craft, and Brahms was, you know, practicing counterpoint um, for much of his life, you know, really... Um, constantly trying to expand and uh, his abilities. But at a certain point, either you've got it or you don't, you know, and the, you know, um, these pieces by Debussy and Rachmaninoff and Walton really show um, them arriving on the scene with complete confidence and um, just incredible masterpieces. I mean, I, I don't find myself sitting on stage thinking, well, here's, here's a historical document for you in the audience. You can hear how they were before they truly formed. I feel like they're every bit the masterpieces of, of the later composers mm -hmm. that they became. Yeah. So uh, going right into the uh, trio elegiac, this G minor by Rachmaninoff, you're going to play this um, a week from tonight on, on Sunday, July 29th, and it's the closing evening of the festival. What I've come to find out about this piece is Rachmaninoff wrote this in about four days' time. This was January of 1892. He was a student at the Moscow Conservatory, just 19 when he wrote this music. Is, um, is this Rachmaninoff relatively new to you, or how does it kind of figure in your repertoire? Um, this is a piece that I've been playing um, for a few years now, um, and it's in one movement. It's a, just an extraordinary piece. You hear Rachmaninoff, uh, his voice, right from the start. He, um, he had been a, a classmate of Scriabin's. They were... Um, they were studying with the same uh, teacher, and I guess they were just they were living in his home, and it was understood you're supposed to practice scales for about four hours before breakfast or uh, right. something like that. It was pretty hardcore, and they were both amazing pianists. Yeah. Um, and obviously, um, they idolized Tchaikovsky, you mm -hmm. know, and um, Rachmaninoff uh, made a great study of Tchaikovsky's works. Yeah. 
We'll break down that relationship a little bit more, but um, you had uh, kind of uh, alerted me to the uh, amazing kind of homage that Rachmaninoff plays, uh, pays to Tchaikovsky in this music. So let's just listen to a little bit of the very opening of the Rachmaninoff trio, and then we'll play the, the, the Tchaikovsky um, shortly after that. I, I'll, I'll start with the recording. I, and, you got and it. You Do can, it. We're going to go back and forth between some of your... Um, examples in, in the recording, but uh, here's, here's the opening of this Rachmaninoff G minor trio. important to, to pay attention to that kind of rising four note theme because as you say that tends to tie things together in this piece it's it, you could hardly be more um uh, explicit of an homage to tchaikovsky than again giving us um compared with i guess you have the the tape also of uh the tchaikovsky same opening sorry wrong notes So one begins, and the other one begins. <laughs> um, it's just like, by the way, I'm a huge fan of Tchaikovsky. <laughs> Hope you enjoy the, the piece. Yeah. Well, Ch Tchaikovsky would, uh, was, a, was a huge fan of Rachmaninoff. I mean, he would show up at his recitals and, and various premieres, and um, I think he very much lo looked great at... Mutual, mutual admiration. Very much so. And very since you've just played that snippet... Um, I don't know how it was for the radio listeners. Um, if you could hear um, here in the studio the um, the uh, sort of motoric um, accompaniment of the strings. Um, so I, I always feel like music tells stories, and um, sometimes they're explicit, and sometimes I just um, get images. And uh, the trio that I play in, the Amelia Piano Trio, they, they tease me because um, I had this very specific image for this opening that there was this very old man sitting on a train going through Siberia, looking at, at the <laughs> Siberian landscape with, with regrets about everything that he'd done in his life. And even though he'd led a good life, it just, he just was filled with so many pains and things that had happened to him. And um, uh, they really tease me about that. Every time we learn a new piece, they say, Andy, is this one on a train too? <laughs> 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 That's terrific. Well, let's 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 hop on board here with Tchaikovsky and see uh, <laughs> see what this ride is like. Thank you. 
yeah, there's well, and a... just and just to be clear, the um, for me the, the the opening train is is the Rachmaninoff, uh, uh, and yet uh, you could almost make the case that that could be a man on a horse and carriage. I felt maybe it was a little different sort of a compliment, but also <laughs> filled with regret and the, yeah. And that's, yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny. It, it, it's it's not funny, but uh, um, the um, this is a, a kind of a premonition of uh, of. Tchaikovsky's death almost. He didn't, uh, Rachmaninoff did not write this as an uh, elegy to Tchaikovsky, but mm. it, was, it was just about a year later that Tchaikovsky died under those mysterious circumstances. And then uh, Rachmaninoff went on to, to write a full-blown indeed, indeed. elegy. One hopes that um, it, it, the first didn't precipitate any, any uh, turn, yeah. turn in, in health. Um, but um, as our time is short, I, I also just want to maybe make that link to, uh, when we talk about Tchaikovsky's link to Rachmaninoff, there's a surprising link between Tchaikovsky and Debussy, the trio that we played two nights ago. Um, and that is this, um, this wonderful patron that Tchaikovsky had, von Meck. And um, uh, she uh, asked uh, Tchaikovsky to write a piano trio. And guess who was also patronized by von Meck at that time and was playing in a resident piano trio at her estate, the young pianist, Debussy. And so um, we don't know this for sure that I know of, but the overwhelming likelihood is that when Tchaikovsky delivered the manuscript of that uh, piano trio to von Meck, that Debussy would have been the first pianist to be playing it in a trio, which is um, kind of hard to picture the composer of this. Oh, sorry. playing this ending of the trio. You know, this uh, crazy um, kind of insane um, Russian minor triads up and down the yeah. keyboard. Yeah. It's sort of an interesting thing to imagine. This, this whole story of, um, of Von Meck hiring Debussy is, is very interesting to me. Is that Debussy went into the Paris Conservatory at age 10, like you say, they either got it or they don't. And, and, he, and he had it, and he's in the Paris Conservatory, and his parents are thinking, this kid is going to be our meal ticket. I mean, he's going to be the great pianist. But he never could win the, Debussy never could win the first prize in, in Paris. And so he's 17, and his parents are thinking, well, this guy's, you know, he's got to generate some income. And along comes this great job with uh, Von Meck. And she's the, um, the, uh, the widow of a wealthy Russian railroad tycoon, and she can... The railroad is important. Yeah, yeah. yes, it is. <laughs> You're really on to something. <laughs> uh, she, and, and he was regretful. Uh, <laughs> not at the marriage. It was a good, a good marriage. It was, it was so, lovely. Yeah. So she, she sounds like she was an interesting, interesting case, but um, that's, that's another story. Uh, in any case, 17 years old, he gets hired to be the kind of house pianist for Von Meck, and he's... Among the duties is he teaches the 27-year-old daughter. She's a singer, and he accompanies her, plays duets with Madame von Meck. And she's got all these uh, Russian connections, so she hires a young uh, cellist and violinist, and Debussy and these two Russians are the, are the house trio. And uh, presumably, it's for one of these von Meck evenings that Debussy, at age 17, wrote this trio. Yeah, that's as good a bet as any. And, and frankly, I don't know how, how he came into her radar in the first place, but... Um boy, we, we're, how grateful can we be to, to her for uh, everything that she did? And you referred to her eccentricity, and um, I'll just mention my favorite one, which is that um, 
she and Tchaikovsky, uh, their letters are very famous for, um, for the intensity uh, and the passion with which they corresponded. Um, and they had, in a way, a love affair of the hearts, um, but they decided that it was important that they never meet. Um, and I guess at one point they accidentally met someplace very briefly, but um, when he would be in her home, they had a strict sort of understanding about who could be in what room at what time, and they would schedule it to make sure that they would never cross each other's path, um, you know, between the uh, living room and the kitchen, as it were. Um, <laughs> right. So I just find that fascinating. Yeah. And it was, it was an intellectual... Um, um, boundary that they drew. It was, they felt that they had such a good thing going, I guess, um, that they just needed to, um, needed to preserve it and, mm -hmm. and, uh, keep all of the fullness that it had in that very specific sense. And who knows if his own, um, if his homosexuality was, uh, a part of his not wanting to, um, be exposed, uh, to her passions. I'm, I'm not sure how that fits in, um, because Lord knows it was a time when he was, um, he would be terribly persecuted in yeah. general, whatever came out. So. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, it's interesting because they had this relationship that they, they couldn't see each other face to face, unlike Debussy, who was interacting yeah. with her all the time. Yeah. Uh, th those letters are, are amazing. Yeah. The chronicling of the, of the fourth symphony. And I mean, they're, they're pretty pretty neurotic <laughs> and he lays it all out there, but it's, it's, you know, it's a, it is a fascinating, fascinating course, correspondence. Uh, I, w I wanted to, the observation I made to you after uh, your performance this past Friday night of the WC trio was really wonderful. And, and as I was sitting there listening to it, I was, I was thinking, boy, here's, here's a young Frenchman who almost sounds like he belongs in an, in an English salon. There, I mean, it's very, you know, late romantic, the, the, the voice of Debussy. And we'll, later we'll talk about William Walton and the piano quartet. And there's Walton, this young Englishman who, who sounds like, you know, Stravinsky in Paris or, or Debussy in Paris. It's, it's very interesting how, how these composers are formulating their voices, but uh, there's, there's a lot of other influences at work. I, I love when you mentioned that on the telephone that you caught on to the, um, I hadn't thought of that inversion that... Um, um, Debussy sounded English in that piece, and uh, <laughs> Walton sounded French. But what I had been um, noticing is funny. I've, I've played that Debussy trio for a little while, and um, it's come into my brain as Debussy now, you know. And um, so it never crosses my mind. And in in the lobby, people kept coming up and saying, "How fascinating! I never would have thought that was Debussy." And um, the it seemed that the overwhelming verdict was that it was terribly romantic and um, and obviously less impressionistic. And so there's another kind of a funny thing that's going on between our choices of Walton piano quartet and Debussy piano trios that the Debussy is not impressionistic. And in a lot of ways, the Walton um, does a lot of the things that impressionists do, such as, and we're going to get into this, the mashing up of pentatonic scale with... Um, Western harmony, you know, major, minor chords and traditional um, chord progressions, um, you know, and obviously that doesn't happen so much. Um, I mean, if you're in a true, um, true uh, traditional Chinese uh, music with the pentatonic scales, 
you're not going to ground those things in, in uh, Western harmony. It's just going to be um, the pentatonic that it is, um, sort of straight up. And we get that one time that, I, that I've noticed uh, in the Walton uh, Quartet. There's one moment when he gives you um, just unmitigated, right near the beginning, actually, uh, unmitigated, just pentatonic. <laughs> If there are any great scholars, and that, that's just a piano solo, believe it or not. It's just, it's funny because the piece is so lavish and sumptuous and rich on top of rich. It's like chocolate mousse on top of <laughs> double chocolate cake with foie gras <laughs> and caviar and warning on a donut. Yeah. Um, but then all of a sudden we get that incredibly sort of <laughs> sparse... Um, uh, and if there are any great scholars of pentatonic out there, you might have noticed just in the last measure, he sneaks in an E natural. And I sort of feel like he's sort of saying, okay, okay, let's get back to where I'm actually grounded in. Also some Western things. And right after that, we, I mean, just moments after this. Right? And, um, and the, uh, the, the um, strings do. And what comes immediately after that? I mean, just major and minor triad, straight up classical, <laughs> Western classical music, the absolute foundations of it. So it's, it's, it's fun how often, sometimes he mashes them on top of each other. In this case, um, he takes them one right after the other. Yeah. I, I wanted to play, um, respecting what you said about you hear, a, you hear it as 17-year-old Debussy and not necessarily as, as Schumann. And a lot of people say they hear Schumann in this uh, in this. Um, DBC trio. So this is the this is the slow movement. I wanted to play just a little bit of that to get a get a flavor for how he's kind of looking back. In some ways, the kind of the lost fantasy piece of Schumann or, or, or something. And before you play the Schumann, uh, do you have a Schumann clip you were going to play? Uh, no. Oh, I beg your pardon. Well, thinking. I just would comment on our, what we were talking about, in, in, um, Walton sounding almost French and um, Debussy sounding almost English. Um, it's a good, that particular recording, it sort of sounds as though maybe the players were in France and the microphones were in England. And um, <laughs> <laughs> it's... It's like the most reverberant sound I've ever heard in my life. It, but that's a great a, point that that you could almost tell someone that was uh, a little Schumann romance uh, yeah. for cello and piano or something. Yeah. And just while we're on the the topic of of exoticism, um, here's a little bit of the the kind of scherzo movement of the Debussy. And having heard the Ravel Quartet played by James Ennis and his colleagues last week, and and that kind of pizzicato movement and, and the way that Ravel. 
thinks about exoticism. It's just kind of interesting to hear this movement of the WC in that context, and we'll get your reactions afterwards here. particular world that comes to mind as you're playing that or a train trip that you've taken? That <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that's the middle section of the scherzo. And um, to me, um, that's where he brings us back a little bit um, to the more sumptuous kind of romantic Debussy uh, sound, um, because that particular scherzo is the exception to our our I keep saying that, you know, the Walton uses pentatonic and, and takes us to the Far East in certain cases. Um, um, the A section of that scherzo, the opening, is where we get... You know, and when we were rehearsing that, um, Stefan Jakif, our violinist, said it's... I feel almost like I'm just in, in the village in Chinatown. That's <laughs> really got that, um, uh, that terribly Eastern flair. So... Um, I think, and this is something that uh, we talked about on the phone wanting to um, cover a lot in all of these pieces, is um, this putting together of disparate elements. And that's how new, that's how new elements kind of, uh, if scientists out there will forgive me for saying this, end up getting, um, get coming into existence. Now I talk about rhesus and everybody, if I talk about a peanut butter cup, that's a thing. But at some point, someone had to say <laughs> chocolate and peanut butter go together. Um, and here, you know, Debussy plays, uh, he composes an A section that really is so Eastern. And then um, this kind of sumptuous, um, using a lot of chords that will end up get, getting used in jazz a lot. And really bringing us um, back west. And um, um, I guess that's the main thing that we're going to be performing the Walton Quartet ton uh, tonight, and that's the main thing I'm hoping people will um, be able to enjoy um, about it. I'm actually staying at uh, a gorgeous home with uh, two dear friends um, who have a great love of uh, Eastern art. And so, um, but it's a, it's a very traditional um, uh, Western architecture of the house. So. Mm. It, that's already the mashup, and I feel like it's been a perfect place to be practicing this Walton Quartet, um, where um, a lot of times what he'll do is he'll give us a, a melody that is built on a pentatonic, um, but it'll be filled out by harmonies that we know as uh, Western harmonies. And I, I said to you on the phone, to me, that it's like uh, harmonic language is sort of the subwoofer of listening. Um, you put the subwoofer on the floor, and you're not hearing, you're not listening to the music of that. You're not listening to the melodies there, but it's making your heart race, and it's making your uh, chest bone vibrate, you know. And similarly, um, we talk about the great melodies of Tchaikovsky and the great melodies of Mozart, but I think it's the harmonic movement that makes the human heart really start to pull. And um, so I think that's one thing that makes Walton um, feel so emotional and um, 
and capture our emotions while delivering it sometimes in, uh, in melodies that would feel maybe a little bit foreign to us otherwise. You know? and, and this is a common thing that, um, that composers do. They, they take something exotic and they put it with what we know. Um, and we were going to end up talking about Bartok too and how he takes, um, I mean, he developed his own distinctive voice by uh, finding all of these Hungarian, uh, all these gypsy uh, melodies, folk melodies, uh, not Hungarian, I shouldn't say that, in that area in Romania and Bulgaria and going into the mountains and doing his research, coming back with these terribly exotic uh, um, themes and dressing them in a Western understanding with oftentimes Western um, uh, musical forms, you know, such as sonatas. Sonata is a Western form, you know, um, or, or harmonic dressing. Um, I don't know if you have any of the contrasts uh, yeah, we'll, here we'll, with you. Yeah, we'll get to that. Oh, just, just to follow your thought, though, I, I love thinking about this period in the last couple of decades of the 19th century, the first couple of decades of the 20th century. Because we're, we're, when we get to Walton, Walton's 16 when he's working on this piano quartet, 1918 and 1919. But I've, I've, I've uh, as, as, as many friends of the festival, Connie Cooper and others will, uh, will tell you, I'm a kind of a Dvorak freak. And uh, just hearing that story of Dvorak coming to America, you know, and riding around on trains and, and, uh, and this new technology of the... Don't bait me. <laughs> we be started. <laughs> of, the, of the transatlantic cable and, you know, news of his, his experiences in the new world going, going to Europe. I mean, I love this period of time. And, I, and you think of Debussy going to the uh, Javanese exhibit at the, at the Paris uh, World's Fair in... in uh, in 1889, and then Vorjak in 1893 going to the World's Fair in Chicago and hearing <laughs> African music, and Ives is there too, and Ives is listening to Scott Joplin playing ragtime, and the, and the stuff that's going on in terms of the cross-fertilization of music and ideas in this, in this period is really interesting, and I think whether it's Bartok or Walton or any of the composers we're talking about today, a lot of that stuff was, was happening. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful expression of the, the cross-pollination, as you say, and how that just keeps on bringing um, new great things. Um, and I guess Dvorak was huge, hugely enamored of uh, American music and and, right. yeah. and jazz. And um, and then I guess I hear this story told in different ways. Was it Gershwin going to Schoenberg or Ravel and saying, can I study with you and being told, but you make such a great... Gershwin, and you would make such a second-rate Schoenberg. Yeah, or, um, right. <laughs> um, and, it's, and it was like, you know, you have that great voice. It's great that you're an outlier. We don't all need to be in this same uh, cookie-cutter sort of mold, you know. When we were talking about um, Walton and, and his language in this uh, piano quartet in, in D minor, you said that it's really... Um, uh, there are individual movements, but it, there is a kind of um, glue that, that holds this together. It's a, certain recurring sounds that have really caught your ear as you've been working on the piece. Yeah, well, and it's, um, it's actually only, only slightly different. I'm just thinking about this as I played this uh, pentatonic for you. Um, it's only slightly different from this. Um, if you take that and just lower the top three pitches, you get, which is a G major seven, with a C sharp on it. 
it's an arresting chord, and it's a very um, distinctive chord. Um, and what makes it um, a chord of as much tension as it does is that the minute we hear G7, we've been trained all our lives, expectation, right? But what happens, do you still, in your ear, do you still want to hear this when you hear this? And what about, oh, that didn't work, right? <laughs> um, and so it really, it, it serves to just take us so far away. Um, actually, I had a Shakespeare uh, professor in school who taught me one of the great music lessons I've ever had in, in our class on Shakespeare. He said, all of art, any art that you're um, looking at, uh, whether it's literature or painting or ballet or music, plays with two types of expectation in its audience either fulfilling that expectation or upsetting that expectation. One of those types of expectation is the type that you bring with you into the work of art. So you've come into this um, uh, room now, or you've tuned into the radio, and I haven't told you what the eighth note is going to be, but when I play this, everyone in here is waiting for a particular note. So you've brought that with you into the experience. And then how do I answer that? Do I fulfill it? Or do I come up with something really great? <laughs> that's what that's half of what art is. Who is it? There's all sorts of answers we can give. Now, another type of expectation is um, the, um, the expectation aroused by the work itself. So, um, in that sense, once the listener notices this kind of uh, culmination in the middle uh, of the movement that brings us to that chord, so evocative, then when it comes back in the next movement, a listener who's really, really acute will think, oh gosh, when is that coming back again? I, that's sort of his leitmotif in a way. Um, a great example of um, an expectation aroused by a work of art, um, there's nobody in, in this room that is hungering for this chord. You weren't just waiting for that chord. You weren't desperately, desperately needing me to play but I can make you want it. <laughs> Didn't the G major sound awful or great or I don't know what? Um, so, so I was so grateful to my uh, professor for teaching us that because um, it gives kind of a great way to read everything, a painting, a ballet performance, uh, just literature, my gosh, literature, they're constantly creating expectations uh, of things to come. Um, and so similarly, um, with, with this Walton, he kind of gives us a clear sense pretty early, we're getting incredibly sumptuous romanticism um, that is going to be thrown in with this pentatonic, it's going to be thrown in with an octatectonic scale, which um, is a very modern thing. It's a Stravinsky, um, a Stravinsky special, as it were. It's basically a stacking together of two diminished chords. 
to make a scale. Sorry. That. So it has eight notes per octave. Um, so that's an exotic thing for us that, um, that Walton took from Stravinsky. But he's constantly going to be mashing these up together in fascinating ways. And uh, he's also using a lot of sort of huge clusters. Things that we don't expect to hear in a piece that's very um, romantic and sumptuous. We'll put this in context with the other instruments, and, and um, I wanted to play just, I think I have the, it's the second movement, the scherzo. Oh, great. And this is these, great. these you know, the, this kind of spiky rhythms and, uh, and, and, and Stravinsky and other influences at work here. So, um, again, this is Walton at, at age 17, um, and a little bit of this piano quartet in D minor. So glad you played that, Dave. Good, That's good. perfect. So it's so uh, spiky at that point, and a um, lot of for that period, very modernistic chords. I uh, maybe I'm crazy. You can kick me out of the studio right now, but I <laughs> I hear him um, I hear him already predicting Kurt Vile a little bit with it. You know, I just I totally hear that coming. Um, but for the most part, the listener who's just heard the first one, here we talk about what I, what I mentioned, expectations. You have a certain degree of expectations from having just listened to the first movement, which has this great mashup of different elements coming together. I mean, in a way, it's just, he's a kid in a candy store, you're right, 17 years old, and he's like, oh, I, I love those octatectonics that Stravinsky did, and oh, that pentatonic is so exotic, and oh, the romanticism of Elgar. So, um, and he's just got to have everything in his piece. So you've already experienced that in the first movement. Then the second movement, that scherzo starts, and it's just so spiky and modernistic. So the, the, the listener, uh, the, acu the acute listener says to themselves, so are we, just, are we just going now in this sort of modernistic direction? Is that it? Did we get all of the sumptuousness? Or is he going to balance this? Is he going to have contrast? And sure enough, right after the... Um, place where you stop, we get a fugue, which is about as um, Western as you can get. And right after the fugue um, in the strings, um, I mean, gosh, the more I think about it, I mean, this piece is it's like MPDs, multiple personality disorder. It's just, it's constantly changing. I, I loved what you said. Uh, I guess maybe James Ennis happened into your rehearsal or, or you were talking about this piece or something. He's in this piece. Yeah, well, that's, well, yes. Yeah, so he was in the rehearsal too. Um, <laughs> That just that that uh, here's here's a kid that you're 17. You're, you're you're I guess you're so supposed to break the rules or you know you do, what, what what else would you expect? From yeah, this yeah, age? yeah. Like, this I'll this, try that. Sure. Yeah, this type of uh, enthusiasm doesn't cover it. Uh, over overzealousness, as it were. <laughs> but um, so what what are we gonna do after after all that spiky modernism and that um, fugue? Um, 
a listener who trusts Walton says he's going to balance it out in the, in the biggest way. And sure enough, the next section, how much more romantic kind of Western feel can you have with, yes, little clusters that make it a little bit modern sounding, but I think you'll agree, quite straightforward uh, sentiment, really. <laughs> I'll tell you something interesting during rehearsal. Um, just so you know the level of our uh, rehearsals and, and what, how fine, uh, well, let's say this, how fine people's um, meters are tuned to just exactly what you're doing. And in the case of James Ennis, how much finer they are than just about anyone. Um, we played that through, and I've always thought when I heard that, I hear pomp and circumstance. Yeah. I think this is pomp and circumstance, you know? I'm so glad I graduated. I guess that's not the appropriate. <laughs> um, but yeah. he says in rehearsal, he says, Andy, can you do it again, but maybe a little less pomp and circumstance sound? <laughs> so that is a sensitive guy rehearsing. <laughs> <laughs> I came across this great note on this, and somebody talked about Elgarian swagger. I think that's Elgarian swagger. That's pretty swaggerish and Elgarish. I would yeah, have to agree. Yeah. Exactly. Well, um, this. It, Again, this period of time is so interesting in the, my comment about, you know, the, the, the French-sounding English and the English-sounding French. Um, I wanted to play a little bit of the, of the slow movement that has this amazing moment for viola, which takes me to, to, to Vaughn Williams. And Vaughn Williams studied briefly with Ravel. And um, last summer, I think it was, the, the festival had the uh, Rebecca Clark viola sonata. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- there's a great story with that where Re- Rebecca Clark entered it in a competition, but she used a, a pseudonym. And, and uh, they, they figured that the, the person submitting the, the piece was Ravel. You know, it had, to be, wow. it had to be a man first, and it had to be French. But lo and behold, it was, it was Rebecca Clark. So, so again, this, this looking to France is, uh, is very pronounced in this music. And I, I just thought I would uh, play a little bit of this slow movement to get, you, get your comments on working on this. As you say, what, what's he going to do? Well, he's yeah. going to take us into this world of reverie, and <laughs> it's a lovely. That's style. a great clip to play, and um, how yeah, how exotic does the viola sound with those with those intervals? Just great fervor, and then you know, I, I played those two crazy chords for for you, and and I had to repeat them a few times before the ear really wanted them right. And sure enough, it's an entire page of piano score that Walton gives these two chords back and forth. This one against this one. <laughs> And so we get them over and until you start to really want it. Nobody came in here thinking, well, if I hear this, I've got to hear this. (laughs) 
But in, after a few measures, so how shocking is it when you get sorry, when, when you get, can't play and talk, and how crazy, right. and then how much more crazy when that culminates. That's a C major chord. Thank you very much. <laughs> and then, so he goes from this, uh, this far off land, he brings us to C major, and another C major to A7, which leads us to... Did anybody expect that to be the culmination of what had begun? You know, and this is why when I present to children, um, the first thing I say to them at the beginning of the hour, I say, if you know how to watch TV or surf the internet, you don't, that doesn't give you the first clue about how to come in to listening to uh, a music concert because you just can't sit and let it wash over you. It just never works to just let it wash over you. You have to compose right along with us. And it doesn't mean you have to be, have a music education. It doesn't mean that you have to say, oh, did you hear that A7 going to, whoever thought that could happen. But you do <laughs> have to be listening thinking, where are we right now? What's going on in the story? Who's, um, where, I mean, gosh, we are not at Times Square. <laughs> um, and where's he going with this? I don't understand where this is going to go. And so I, I, I actually make them make up stories to what I play and then share them with their peers afterward so that, um, uh, so that if they're, trying to prepare to present to their peers. They're really listening actively. I want to I wanna have a good story to relate. And then all of a sudden, they find themselves actively involved with it instead of passively letting it wash over them and say, that was boring. I didn't even know how to pronounce the name. It was just weird. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so similarly, we hope that um, you know, when you come for the Walton, um, you know, maybe take a two-hour nap just before hydrate well. You know, eat a good dinner, but not so full that you're tired, you know, and then come and work, like really work with us. And I promise it's just so much more rewarding than when all of a sudden it goes to C major and you say, that I did not. I was not ready for that. <laughs> News you can use in this helpful podcast <laughs> to, to get ready to go hear some Walton. One more example from this recording, and, and this gets us back at, into the, the, again, the sort of spiky um, angular, Stravinsky-like world. Um, it struck me, I, I was called on about four years ago to, to narrate Facade by, by Walton, which is this great setting of the um, Sitwell poetry. And it's just interesting to note that um, the Sitwell family became very close with Walton uh, for, for about 17 years, and they had a kind of falling out. But their first meeting was around the time of this piece. Was, uh, was in about 1918 that they found out about this young kid in school and heard that he was a genius. And here's... When he was um, getting kicked out of school, right? He, he, yeah, he was not... Um, didn't, he didn't care about it, any of his other studies. Anything about failing but, but music. chemistry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, was not, it was not happening for him academically. But uh, I d there's this little short letter that I wanted to read just because it talks... Um, it's either Oz, Osbert or, or, or Edith writing here about meeting Walton and... They say, our host, not quite 17 years of age, was found to be a rather tall, slight figure with pale skin and straight, fair hair. Sensitiveness rather than toughness 
was the quality at first most apparent in him. The atmosphere was not, however, easy. Music showed a way out of the constraint, and I think she's talking here about just all the academic problems that he was having. And after tea, we pressed him to play some of his compositions to us. Accordingly, he sat down at the piano to, th to play the slow movement from his piano quartet. As he began to play, he revealed a lack of mastery of the instrument so that it was difficult to form an opinion of the music at first hearing. It was as impossible that afternoon to estimate his character or talents as it was to foresee that for the next 17 years he would become an inseparable companion and friend. Um, and, and, when they, and just a few year later, years later, when he goes on to write Facade, which is just, talk about a mashup of this, this kind of strange Victorian poetry you know, filtered through Spanish music and every kind of style you could imagine. And there's Edith Sitwell at the first performance delivering this through a megaphone that was very, very avant-garde and strange when it first came out. But the, but the music so, so delightful. Um, and, and so this, this time that this piece was written was, was very formative in, in his life. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, well, I think one of the reasons he dropped out is that he was, uh, they said he was always in the library uh, just pouring over scores of the composers he adored. Um, yeah. you know, and he needs I, re to learn I recently, how to manage his time better. Obviously. <laughs> I recently had a, I, re I recently, I, I taught at a summer camp and there was, um, there was a student who said, I really love music when I hear it and it makes me want to become a violinist, but I've never been able to really make myself practice. And, um, it's just hard. I do love it and I can't, I can't let go of the dream, but I just can't practice. And I pointed, I pointed her in the direction of another student who was at the camp um, with whom I was working at 11 p.m. one night, and he was just eagerly saying, but what about this fingering, and how can I pedal this? What do you think about the pedal? And, and then security comes into the building, and they say, you guys have to go. And, and so I start to walk out the room, and, and the boy says, but what about, I meant to ask you about this section. What am I going to do? And security was standing there for 15 minutes and looking more and more intimidating and downright ticked off. And... This kid could not stop. It was like he was diseased. I mean, and they always tell us, you know, it's like, it's like a sickness from which you don't recover. Um, and uh, so it sounds like Walton had a really, really bad case right, right from the start, <laughs> where it's not about, you know, oh, I got to go and do some of my composition study again so I can become a, a great composer. It's like it's just every breath that yeah. he took, it sounds like. Yeah, at that point and you know the the genius becomes the the teacher or the or the artist that can help channel that. You know, sort of like you were with that the, the the kid that didn't want to practice but loved music. I mean, sometimes maybe it's not playing the violin that's going to be the thing that gets you to engage with music. Maybe you're going to engage as a listener or or who knows. One raises that thought as as emphatically as one can <laughs> with someone that doesn't want to practice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't do the world any favors, please. Yeah. Yeah. No, as the parent <laughs> we of... As we don't need another of, violinist if you don't love it. Exactly. As a parent of, of one child who's very nose to the grindstone and it's all about the bassoon and another who, who loves music, but you know, practicing the cello is... <laughs> that's the drag part of it. You, know, you have to sit down and practice. Um, well, let me, let me just play a bit of this Walton since I have it here, this last movement, and see how he veers back in another direction. Thank you. 
that to me is the Walton that uh, Belshazzar's Feast. If, if if you've heard that great choral work, I I happened to play it years and years ago, and and uh, not, that not sort of driving either. rhythmic energy. Um, and again, some nods to Stravinsky there and some of the rhythms and chords. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of that last movement is just high octane energy, um, especially after the third movement. I mean, that snippet you played was helpful. It's um, um, even the opening of the third movement is, is backtrack one moment. I mean, it's just um, wherever we've been before, he just decides. You know, here's a thought for my third movement. Why don't I just write the tenderest, most romantic thing that I could just ever write? Because you get, or anyone could write. So here is just so warm and loving, and he just surrenders to any mashups at this point. I think it's it's just, um, or he 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 forsakes them for a while. So I think then, when with the last movement, um, it's time for more contrast. And uh, <laughs> so I'm glad you played. And incidentally, that fourth movement, the last movement, starts with that famous chord I was telling you about that comes uh, um, throughout the movements. It starts with this. <laughs> so wrong and it's so right <laughs> so so we get we get that um we get that coming coming um through throughout the, actually even in the third movement we were talking about that bit where we're just in the middle of persia um you know with three um concubines wearing inappropriate things in the sands and it's so beautiful right i mean well is that what's happening You definitely wouldn't tell your wife about going here. <laughs> right. But um, then, then he, um, then he takes us back into, um, you know, the more the more real stuff that we know. I got so distracted by that Persian thing, I forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> How embarrassing! <laughs> but oh, I was going to say that that one itself accumulates in this chord. That's another one that takes us there. So um, here we've gotten, uh, you know, completely Western harmony, right? And, and then... And we never, we never, we never thought we would end up there with with that comma. Um, uh, so again, as always, it's just constantly making us feel, oh, we're going there, we're going there, and sometimes it pays off, and sometimes it's a shakaruni, and that's the that's the fun part um, as the listener. And I think that was the important part of what my Shakespeare professor was saying. Yes, there are two types of expectations: the one you bring and the one you develop from the work itself. But there's there's also another dichotomy: are they going to give you what you wanted at the end of that expectation, or will it be that surprise? Uh, a friend of mine who's a composer says Rachmaninoff is the greatest example of that. Um, she always describes how he just constantly promises too much. And it says, I'm going to go there. I'm really going to go there. And this is how great it's going to be. 
it's going to be greater than you ever thought. No, it's going to be more than that. And then you're thinking, dude, you're overselling it. You'll never get there. And he always gets there. <laughs> and it's so amazing. So, and I think in a way, that's one reason that some people dismiss him because they're so annoyed that he always gets there, you know? <laughs> I, I want to, we, we have very little time, but just a quick word about the, the Bartok contrasts on our um, podcast of July 2nd. We talked in some detail with James Ennis about this, and he's, he's another uh, partnering with you again in the Bartok contrasts on Friday, July 27th with the clarinetist Ricardo Morales. This is a piece that was uh, first heard in 1940, Benny Goodman commissioned by Bartok. Uh, along with Joseph Zagetti, the violinist, uh, Bartok at the piano, Goodman playing clarinet. Um, let me just play a little bit of the slow movement. We talked with James. Because we have thought about this. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we talked with James about the Verbunkos, which is so funny. It's an army recruiting dance. and the, <laughs> Be all that you can be. Join the Hungarian <laughs> army to the strains of Bela Bartok. Um, but uh, this movement, uh, completely but, different uh, character and I'll play a little bit of it. This is the uh, Goodman recording from 1940 and just get a couple thoughts from you about this okay. music. That well, <laughs> yeah, I just have a question for, for you here in the audience today. Um, if, you've been, if you've had a stressful day, maybe, or things have been a little rough, didn't listening to that just make you feel so soothed and, and just breathe a sigh of relief, all is going to be well with the world? <laughs> um, you, of course, know by how you feel right now that that movement is entitled Relaxation. I'm being sarcastic. It really is called relaxation, but um, Dave and I were talking before about, you know, we were talking about mashups. I think this is almost a, a word, a, a language slash uh, music mashup where um, he writes music that is anything but relaxing. And I just feel my spine straighten when I listen to that. And um, it's just terribly foreboding. And, and we were talking about it, trying to decide, um, you know, is it a difference in the... Language. I mean, my Hungarian is very, very rusty, and so I don't, I don't know the connotations of ruhe or ruhe, however it's pronounced. But um, uh, alternatively, is it that by going into all that folk music and knowing the meanings behind uh, different themes and such, did he hear that music differently than we do? I mean, with our Western ears, do we hear those particular chordal progressions and think? That's alarming. This is kind of terrifying music in a way. And for him, uh, after his studies, do they have a different language, a different way of communicating e emotions or images through sound? I mean, why is it that when you teach a child major and minor, you could say, well, you can recognize major because it's happy, and minor is sad. 
Well, who, who said? <laughs> Why is that so? I mean, do we really know that? I mean, we certainly all feel that because, but is that um, just because that's how we've been trained from the beginning? I, it's hard to say. And yeah. this, this movement really raises the question. Yeah. Well, and I, I will uh, end here just to say that I'm very excited to hear that uh, you and James have recorded some bar talk and are kind of in the process of, of doing a lot of that. Yes. Thanks for asking. Uh, James is, is really, um, a huge, huge authority in Bartok, uh, in the world. In there's, uh, there are few, I think that could ever, um, uh, to whom he would have to kowtow. Um, he's, he's recorded the, uh, violin concertos and, and viola concerto of Bartok. Um, and we've started, um, a three disc set of Bartok, uh, or I shouldn't say a set, a set of three different discs. Um, the first one came out in January on the Shandos label, and it's the two uh, violin sonatas and the two rhapsodies of Bartok. This summer, we recorded um, some of his smaller pieces and a more obscure sonata, which is early, which actually, for the first time in your life, makes you think, yes, Bartok was Liszt's countryman, hmm. and yes, I can hear some Listian romance in there, and yes, I can hear young Bartok idolizing Strauss. So it's kind of an amazing uh, piece. It's, an, it's the Sonata for Violin and Piano in E, and that's an early one. That'll come out next, mu uh, next uh, winter, I think, in January. And then next summer, we're going to record the contrasts of Bartok, the piece that we'll play on the 27th, if memory serves. Right um, and he's also going to do the, um, the 44 violin duos. Um, and I think they're still cementing the... Um, who the violinist will be with him. Uh, but there are 44 incredible duos, each of them 40 seconds long or minute and 30 <laughs> seconds. Just, and each one so evocative that you just can't get out of your head. Yeah. At, at our our uh, microcosmos training will uh, serve us well as we <laughs> listen to these little bursts of, yeah. of great sound from Bartok. Yeah. Um, let's give Andrew a round of applause. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, So with that, we come to the end of this latest in our series of classical conversations with the uh, Seattle Chamber Music Society Summer Festival artists, Andrew Armstrong, playing uh, all this week. So go to the website and uh, get your tickets if you haven't done so already. And uh, eventually this series of podcasts will be up there. We've got one up already. So tell your friends about that. And thank you so much for being here. Jeremy Jolly produces these programs. Bill Levy is our recording engineer and technical producer. I'm Dave Beck from 94.9 KUOW Public Radio in Seattle. And thanks again for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon.